Kids, you guys can go ahead and head out. Well, I just want to give you uh, some advance warning today that I'm going to be asking uh, all of us some really tough questions today. Because um, <clears throat> I really want us to not just be a group of people who just blindly read the Word of God and just, you know, whatever the pastor says or I've heard this person say or whatever, that that's just the way it is and um, that we just have to accept that. And um, it's good for us to question, it's good for us to wrestle it's good for us to kind of throw out some tough questions before God and really, to the core of who we are, really believe in, in what it is that we move forward with, our perspective on life. And so there's some challenging things we're going to come across today, and then I'm going to ask you some questions, and I'd love for you to, to be honest and, and to think about those things with us today. So don't open your Bibles there yet, but today we're going to be taking a look at Psalm 91, and... Um, did I see some of you move for your Bibles? No, I used to say that all the time in seventh grade. I'm going to hand you this piece of paper when I was a teacher, but I don't want you to read it yet. I want you to stay focused with me. And they never did. So anyways, you guys are so much more mature than that. So um, we're going to be looking at Psalm 91. And when you open it up later and you look at it, there's not going to be an author listed above it. And so as I studied this week, um, some of the, the scholars, they, they have this theory that um, if there's not an author listed, that you look at the previous psalm to see who wrote it, and that a lot of times it's the same person, and they just didn't write that person's name again uh, the next time. So Psalm 90, the one before this, was written by Moses, which is pretty unique. Um, not many psalms by Moses. And so if we buy into this theory, then he also wrote Psalm 91. And when we look at it from that context, as, as this uh, writer describes some events and descriptions, it makes a lot of sense that Moses would be the one that wrote it as we look through some of the stories in the Old Testament. So we're going to go with that theory uh, this morning. We're going to ask you to kind of read it through that lens of Moses and some of the things that he did. And if I'm totally wrong, it really doesn't matter because it's still good stuff and you're going to learn something anyways. But uh, that's what we're going to try to do. So what I first want to do is I want to backtrack with us for a minute to remind us of kind of the lives of the Israelites under Moses' leadership and what was kind of going on. So I need you to open your Bibles now to Exodus chapter 12, which is page 47. Exodus 12. And the Israelites had migrated to Egypt during a time of famine. And so they settled there, and they married and had kids, and before you know it, the Israelites are this huge population in Egypt. And a new pharaoh comes to power, and he's not real comfortable with the fact that there's this mass of Israelites in his country now. He's a little afraid that if somebody attacks, they might join their side. And so he enslaves the Israelites. And so into that predicament, God sends Moses to be his spokesman. And most of you guys kind of know the story. Moses goes to the Pharaoh and says, let my people go. And he says, I won't do that. And so God sends these plagues on the people of Egypt to try to turn their hearts. 
And starting in chapter 7, if you looked at the titles, you would see some of the plagues that God inflicted on Egypt. The plagues of blood, frogs, gnats, flies, livestock, boils, hail, locusts, darkness. Kind of sounds like that cross-country camp I just got back from, actually. (laughs) And finally, the plague on the firstborn. That was kind of the final one. And in this last plague, God was going to strike down the firstborn children of all the Egyptians and all the the livestock, the oldest uh, child of the livestock as well. But he had a plan to save the Israelites. And so he told Moses his plan. Moses goes to the people and says, okay, here's the deal. On this night, this is what's going to happen. And he says, "What, what God has told me to tell you is that you need to take a spotless lamb, which they would have immediately connected with. That's what they did each year before Jesus came. They would take that to the temple as a sacrifice for the sins of their family. So that's why Jesus is called the spotless lamb of God when he came. Okay, so they said, take a spotless lamb. We want you to take the blood of that lamb, and we want you to wipe it over the doorpost of your house. And this is what happens in verse 12 and 13. It says, on that same night I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. So on the heels of that deliverance, the Pharaoh finally says to the Egyptians, hey, I mean to the Israelites, get out of my country. Okay, and so they're free to go. They leave. They, they cross over the Red Sea. And eventually, after a while, they, they get into the promised land that God promised them, which is now the nation of Israel. So with that kind of story fresh in our minds, I want you now to turn to Psalm 91. We're going to take a look and see it through the eyes of of Moses and his people. Psalm 91 is page 417. Follow along with me. It says, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will save the Lord. He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Surely he will save you from the fowler's snare and from the deadly pestilence, which is just another word for disease. He will cover you with his feathers and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. You will not fear the terror of night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the plague that destroys at midday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only observe with your eyes and see the punishment of the wicked. If you make the most high your dwelling, even the Lord who is my refuge, then no harm will befall you. No disaster will come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. You will tread upon the lion and the cobra. You will trample the great lion and the serpent. Because he loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue him. I will protect him, for he acknowledges my name. He will call upon me, and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life will I satisfy him and show him my salvation. pretty powerful stuff and if you read it a few times it starts to kind of sink in these promises God has for us but one of the first questions that 
I asked myself when I read this, if we're going to see it through the lens of Moses and his people, is why the Israelites would have trusted God at that moment. I mean, hadn't he allowed them to become slaves and to be abused? And so when he comes and says, hey, I need you to do these things, why would they have believed that? (laughs) What do you think? Okay, they were desperate maybe. I want you to, let's, let's put this in context. Okay, so say that your, your parent allows you to be abused by somebody, allows you to be in a way enslaved by somebody, mistreated, and then they come to you and say, now I want you to do this and I want you to follow my instructions. I mean, can you imagine how torn you would be about, now what, like over here you're, You've kind of allowed us to, to live this existence, and now you're coming in and telling us that we need to be this way. And I mean, that would have been difficult, <laughs> I would think. But what happens is, it says every one of them, I mean, that's the story, every one of them obeyed and was spared. Every one of them in that moment acknowledged that the only way out was by trusting God and his protection for us. And so I kind of was thinking to myself, I wonder what it was. I mean, was it... Was it Moses' great leadership and just their confidence in him? Was it um, the fact that there was just kind of this positive peer pressure, like everybody's doing it, you know? Everybody's smearing blood above their doorposts. Maybe I should too. Was it fear? I mean, they'd kind of seen God do some crazy stuff <laughs> to the Egyptians, you know? So they might have been thinking, man, this guy's serious, right? I think it was probably a little bit of all of those things. But we all have a choice, in life about whether to obey God and to believe in his promises or to to disobey those things and kind of roll the dice and see what happens. But you notice that this psalm has definitely some conditional statements in it, some if-then statements. Starts from the very beginning in verse 1. He says, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High. Okay, so from the very beginning, first of all, it it doesn't make any distinctions about who he is. Poor, rich, young, old, black, white, it doesn't matter. God doesn't discriminate. If you put your trust in him, these promises are true for you. It says, he who dwells. So a person who lives or resides or, or, or abides in his shelter, it says they can find rest. Why can they find rest? Well, it says you can find rest in the shadow of the Almighty. We can rest because we know that God is able, completely able and committed to protect us and his followers. So then the question is, how often do we dwell in the presence of God? And what does that even mean? I mean, if somebody tells you, well, you just need to dwell in the presence of God more. Okay, what do you mean by that? What what does that statement mean? In a practical sense, if somebody's going to walk out of here this week and dwell in the presence of God in their life, what would that look like? What could it look like? What does it look like in your life? What do you think? Trusting God for his intervention in everything you do. 
okay? Recognizing he's in every moment, okay? And we'll get to that a little bit later, more on that. What else? What does it look like to dwell in his presence? Yes, Kyle. Okay, good. Everything, whether small things, big things, that we come to God, we realize that he's interested and concerned in every aspect of those things, okay? Anything else of what it looks like to dwell in his presence in life? Yeah, Kendra? Okay. Okay, make time to connect with him, to kind of reorient yourself. A great example of this are, are the monks who have their, their daily office where every so many hours they, they, they stop whatever they're doing and they, and they refocus and recenter and, and remember to be in the presence of God, why they're doing what they're doing and, and taking those times throughout the day to, to kind of remember what am I doing, why am I doing it, who am I serving, Okay. So if we do those things, if we dwell in the presence of God, and, and it reminds me of the story about Peter walking on the water. You know, in that story, he gets out of the boat. Jesus says, yeah, come on out, walk to me, right? Peter gets out, and he's doing good as long as he keeps his eyes on Jesus. And then the Bible says that the wind and the waves start coming up, and he starts to notice things, and he starts to get really afraid because he's taking his focus off of God's ability to, to have Peter do that, and he starts to put his mind back on himself and he's thinking to himself, I can't do this. And as soon as he starts thinking about his ability, he starts going under. All right? And we do that in life. Staying in the presence of God is a moment-by-moment -moment choice. But so often, we, people compartmentalize their faith. And so they take God with them in certain situations and they leave him in other situations. So we might go to work or to school or you know, out on the weekends to the clubs or wherever we go, and, and we kind of leave God at home. And then on Sunday morning, you know, we kind of bring God out of the closet, or we go to small group during the week, and we kind of put our, our God clothes back on. And so it's difficult to dwell in the presence of God when, when you compartmentalize him, and he's only good for certain parts of your life, and you're comfortable following him or acknowledge him in certain places, but not in all places. And dwelling in his presence becomes more of an event than a lifestyle, a way of living. And so we miss out on the things that God has for us when we choose to only acknowledge him at certain times. As you look at verse 2, you can tell that the person who wrote this had a personal experience with seeing God come through. He says, he is my refuge, my fortress, my God, in whom I trust. So do we speak with, do we speak about God's character and confidence because of the things that we've seen him do in our life? When we talk about God, do we, in what terms do we talk to him, talk about him to others? Have we put our trust in him completely? Is God really our refuge and our fortress? Really? Or, if we were honest, do we really put our, our, our refuge in our finances, 
our, our spouse, our friends, our career, our relationships, our abilities? What are you really putting your trust in? Verse 1 and 2 talks about a safe place, a sanctuary, a refuge. And then verses 3 through 8 are, are talking about a safe journey that we can have. But as you look at those verses and what's described in those verses, 3 through 8, we realize that the reality of life is difficult. I mean, there's some extreme challenges there that are mentioned. God doesn't promise us a life free from hardship. He just promises that certain things can be present in the midst of those things. If you obey and dwell in the presence of God, then the writer says some of these things will surely happen to you. He will save you. He will cover you. He will be your shield. You will not fear. God is, is adequate in each and every one of those situations that they describe. That is complete trust. I want you guys to think back to when you were three or four years old. Okay? For some of us, that's longer than others. But when you were three or four, you had complete trust in your parents. I mean, if they told you to go get on that diving board and jump off and that they were going to catch you, you might be scared about the height, <laughs> but you weren't really scared about whether your parents were going to catch you or not. Right? You had complete trust in them. And I've been around kids, you know, and, and sometimes you'll pick kids up and put them up on the counter in the kitchen, you know, and you'll kind of be there and kind of talking to somebody, and all of a sudden they jump at you, right? And you're not even paying attention. You're like, oh, man, you know? And they had complete, there was no doubt that they were, you were going to catch them, you know, even if you weren't paying attention, right? When you're a kid, you see your parents as like Superman and Wonder Woman. I mean, they're ever-present and always able, right? But as kids grow up, we start to learn that our parents are flawed, and that maybe they're not going to rescue us from every situation and so because we know that our parents have limitations we start to kind of make backup plans in life just in case people let us down and we do the same thing in our faith and that's why god says you've got to come to me like a three or four year old you've got to trust me that way what did jesus mean when he said this in Matthew, there it is, <laughs> and he said, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. I mean, that's a pretty bold statement. You will never enter the kingdom of heaven. What do you think Jesus meant? What was all encompassed in that? Mm -hmm. Just in kind of a simplicity of the way a child would view life or view the world. Yeah. What else? Anything else? Yeah, Randy. Okay. Becoming completely dependent. A three or four year old can't just wander off into the world and take care of themselves, right? They have to have parents take care of them, clothe them, feed them, nurture them, all those things. 
That's why when God talks with people, when Jesus is having interactions, he says, you must be born again. Like, you've got to come back to, you know, you think you know all of this. You think that you've got all these abilities and that you can do life on your own. I'm telling you that you can't. You've got to be reborn. You've got to become like a child in order to understand what our relationship is supposed to be like, what your trust in me is supposed to be like. Because, yeah, we can, we can get warped and jaded as we get older. We can start making these contingencies and backup plans. What if and what if that? And, and this is what a life of faith comes down to. Putting one's life in God's hands and striving to trust in and rely on him. And it's a lot harder than we think. You can take that down now, Elijah. Moses, when he led those people out, God had done all these amazing things. And he gets them out, and he's heading towards the promised land. And he runs right into the Red Sea, this big body of water. And he doesn't know how he's getting across it. At the same time, Pharaoh has decided, you know what, maybe I do want those slaves. So he's got his army, and they're charging after him. And Moses and his people are squeezed in the middle of these two pretty rough realities. And not only that, but these million Israelites are griping and moaning at Moses and complaining. Why'd you bring us out here to die? We were better off being slaves. You know, in the midst of that moment, with all of that going on, how did Moses respond? Look at this verse in Exodus. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Now the reason why that verse is so amazing is because it's not till the next verse that God actually tells Moses how he's going to get him out of that jam. Moses says this before he even knows that the Red Sea is going to be parted or how to do that. He makes this statement based solely on what he knows about God's character. When we experience trials in life, what bold claims do we make about God's character, about his protection and provision? What, what claims are we willing to make and to trust in before we know what the way out's going to be based on what we know about God and who he is? Or do we get into those circumstances and we find ourselves like the Israelites moaning and groaning about the, the spot that we're in in life? And oh, woe was me. Ignoring all that God's done for us before. Ignoring, you know, the promises that he have about his complete ability to do anything that he wants to and his willingness to do that for people who trust in him. Now this psalm kind of goes back and forth between talking about the safe place and then and a promise for a safe journey. And so in verse 9, he repeats kind of his opening claim. He says, if you make the most high your dwelling, even the Lord who is my refuge. So again, if you remain in his presence, God, your refuge, the third time he's called God that. He says, if you do that, then again, God will show up. But this time, not just God alone. Verse 11 says that God will send his angels to guard you on your journey. Do you believe in that stuff? I mean, really. 
Like that there's this spiritual realm with, with angels and demons out there. One group hell-bent on destroying your life. And the other group kind of standing ready to, to come in and protect you if you call upon them. You really believe that that is going on out there. When I read something like that in the Old Testament, one of the things that I do is I look at the New Testament and I look and say and see how did Jesus treat that topic? Did Jesus talk and act like there were demons and angels? Because to me that kind of verifies things a little bit, okay? So this is what Jesus said in Matthew. He said, see that you do not look down on one of the little ones. For I tell you that there are angels in heaven. Always see the face of my Father in heaven. So basically, this is, this is kind of where we get that whole idea of the, the guardian angel concept. is kind of from this verse. Jesus is saying that there are angels watching over children. And just all of us in general. So he speaks like they really exist. So if you make God your dwelling, he and his angels will watch over you on your journey. And that's a promise, again, that you can put your trust in. Now here's the question of the day. And I've really wrestled with this some this week, and so I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Maybe you can help me out. Is Psalm 91... Filled with promises for Moses and his people in that particular situation alone? Or are those promises for us today as well? And what I mean by that is this. Does context matter in this situation? If this was written by Moses about a particular situation and God's promises in that particular setting... Can we take those and then transfer them over to life today? Does context matter? So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Because I think it's a really important question. Yes. Okay. Okay, she said that we're supposed to learn from all previous things and we need to bring it currently into our life today. So there's no right or wrong answer. So just your opinion and then I'll talk more about it here in a minute. What do you think? Okay, great, I agree with that. That God's character is not based on a particular situation. His character is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. So if he was faithful and obedient and just and all those things then, then he would be today also, okay? So that is transferable from any story or situation to our present situation. There's probably specific things in there that if you think of it in terms of the plagues and those different things that, that in some ways I think really fit for that situation. Here's where I want to challenge us a little bit this morning. I want to give an example of 
Rwanda during the genocide, 1994, 95 in that era. Okay, in the matter of a hundred days, if you were in the wrong tribe, a million people were slaughtered. 10,000 people a day on average for a hundred days. Now I want you to imagine that you're a person whose several people in your family have been killed. You've been watching this slaughter going on all around you. And one day you just kind of open your Bible up to Psalm 91 and you look at verse 7 and 8. And you read, a thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, and this is all happening, but it will not come near you. You will only observe with your eyes and see the punishment of the wicked. Now you could take that and you could be like, oh, cool, nothing's going to happen to me. God promises that he's going to protect me. And then if that person got murdered a day later, are God's promises still true? Is he still the refuge and the fortress that you can put your trust in? Or is he only those things if life turns out well for us? Because we can certainly take promises from the Bible that may have been meant in a particular context and we can try to transfer them to today and then we can be really disheartened when it doesn't appear that God shows up the way we thought he was going to and rescues us from this situation. And I say that because I want you to be careful about how you apply and use the word of God. That sometimes things were written for a particular context. We can't just pull them out and put them over here and say, well, God did that, so he's going to do this now. And then it doesn't happen, and you're just like, everybody's bewildered. Maybe the person that you made the promise to is bewildered. You can see, let me just ask you this. Does that get God off the hook? Because if he does show up and rescue you, then, well, yeah, man, that's what God said he would do. But then if he doesn't, people will say, well, you know, God's promises are eternal. Ultimately, you're going to be rescued and you're going to have eternal life with him. So it really wasn't that he was wrong. It's just that that promise might not be for now. It might be for later. Have you ever heard that line of thinking and been like, well, man, it's kind of like the weatherman, right? 50% chance of rain tomorrow. You know, you're like, well, any idiot can say that. I mean, I don't have to go and get a degree or know anything about Doppler radar to say, you know, 50-50. Does that get God off the hook? Thoughts? Yeah, Joe.
Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, Karen. Yeah. Okay, she said that all of all these things kind of intersect at the cross. Um, you know, that God's presence, he's fully with us, he's, he's rescuing us in that moment. And I've said before that, you know, if God never does another thing for me the rest of my life, how could I complain about the deal that I've gotten already? I, I didn't deserve to be forgiven. I didn't deserve heaven. I didn't deserve, you know, a wonderful family and kids. I didn't deserve any of that, but it was given it to me. If he never does another thing for me, could I come to him and say, well, man, I got the shaft, man, you know? No, I've, I've already gotten more than I ever should have gotten to start with. Bill, do you have something? Yeah. Yeah. Right. She's talking about the example of Daniel in the lion's den and, you know, these guys that were faithful were dwelling in God's presence and, you know, they said because of that, because you won't worship this foreign God, we're going to put you into this furnace and kill you and it's like, you know, okay, I mean, God, if he wants to rescue me, he, he can, but even if he doesn't, he's still God, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yes, Barb.
Yeah. Okay. Because his character never changes. And so what I'm trying to prove to you guys today, I'm trying to make a point. <laughs> I'm trying to make a point that it's really dangerous for us to just look at a verse or two verses and to pull those out and to quote those to people and to say, well, you know, it says this, so this is what God's going to do without looking at the entirety of Scripture, which is really what Karen did and what Bill did, is they said, if you look at the whole story of God and you understand the cross and what happened there and you understand what happens later in the book of Daniel and those things and you put the whole picture together, then you get the fullness of God in his story and where we fit into that and how he works. And I've just been in too many situations with well-meaning Christians who tell people, especially kind of young in their faith, hey, God says this here, and so you just need to believe it and trust in it. And I'm just like, yeah, but over here he says this. <laughs> that would say kind of the exact opposite possibly. Or, you know, would paint a definitely more full picture of the reality where he says, you know what, in this world there will be many troubles. And, I, you know, the classic example for me is John the Baptist. I mean, a guy who's doing God's will, the cousin of Jesus, Jesus says about him, no man has ever has been greater than John the Baptist has been born in this world. And what happens? He gets his head cut off. I mean, you want to talk about bad things happening to good people. Now, if John the Baptist would have been looking up in the Bible and said, well, God promises to protect me and the angels are everywhere. I mean, you know. So we just have to be very careful because there's lots of examples of some bad things happening to good people in the Bible. The reality is, is that none of us are good. So we have to start with that idea, <laughs> okay? So be careful how you use scripture. Lesson for the day, bottom line, all right? But I love how this psalm ends. If you look at verse 14, the actual spoken words of God. So God sees the faith of Moses, and God replies, because he loves me, said the Lord, I will rescue him. I will protect him, for he acknowledges my name. He will call upon me, and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life will I satisfy him and show him my salvation. That's what God chose to do for Moses. Doesn't mean that it's going to be for every one of us, but that was God's reply in that situation. If God promises to do some of those things, his nature, his character to rescue us, to redeem us, to heal us, to restore us, why would we ever resist that? Why would we ever put our trust in ourselves or in somebody else or in our job or in our money or our possessions when none of those things have the ability and the nature and the power of God? You ever ask yourself why you do that? Because I do it. I trust in some other things that I think are going to make me happy or make my life make sense, and then they inevitably don't. <laughs> and then I go back and do the same thing again, you know, and I'm just an idiot. I haven't learned my lesson. Why would I trust in anything else but the God who is able to do all of that? So I don't know what this psalm does for you. And like a lot of things here, I want to send you away with some questions, some things to wrestle with about how this applies to our life, because it's not always so neat and cut and dry. 
and easy to understand sometimes the things that God does or doesn't do besides for us to understand that that because of his actions on the cross we can trust him, that we know that he loves us and he wants the best for us and he works things for good, that that doesn't make it easy sometimes we're in the midst of it. For me, it gives me a tremendous amount of assurance about what his intentions are towards me. No matter how circumstances turn out in my life, I know what his desire is. To me, it reminds me that I need to stay connected to him. That dwelling in the presence thing is so important. And that it's a choice that I have to make on a daily basis. It reminds me of how perilous the world is. How many challenges and trials are out there, but that God is in the midst of it with me. So in life, when you find yourself, like Moses, stuck between the Red Sea and an Egyptian army caving in on you, what do you put your hope and your trust in? What bold claims about God are you going to make based on what you know about his character? Could you stand like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and say, you know what, I believe God can rescue me from this, but even if he doesn't, he's still God. I'm still going to worship him. Can you have faith like a child in the midst of that, to trust him completely and not in your own ability, not in the things of this world, but in him alone? Guys, every time that we come to the communion table, it's an opportunity for us to reaffirm what it is that we believe about God. And when we come, we need to ask ourselves questions like this today. When I come and I, I take this bread and this cup and I, I eat it, am I communicating to God that I trust you? I'm putting my hope in you, in you alone. And we need to, we need to wrestle with that as we prepare our hearts to come. And we need to say to God, God, what else am I trusting in besides you? What else am I putting my hope in that's not you? And we need to repent of those things. And say, God, forgive me for putting my hope and my trust in things like that. You alone are the only one that can give me the strength and the power and the courage and the boldness or whatever to live the life for you that you desire for me to live. So that's the opportunity we have this morning. Let's pray. And then the ushers will dismiss you to come forward and take communion. God, we thank you that your nature and your character are eternal. They never change. And God, we've talked this summer as we've gone through the Psalms about what that character is. And man, we're just blown away by the depth of your unfailing love, your compassion, your patience, your forgiveness and grace and mercy, your justice. That's the God that we hope in, that we know is with us that showed us the extent of that love when he went to the cross, gave his life so that we might know him. God, as we come to you today and we just spend some time in silence, Lord, I pray that you would show us the ways in which we are trusting in other things, trusting in our own knowledge and ability to get us out of certain situations in life, trusting in our spouse or our friends or or anything other than you. God, help us to find our hope in you alone. We just give you this time right now. Speak to our hearts, God.